a jury is seated to decide life or death for the Parkland shooter. The travel tie-ups at South Florida airports and our tunnels for Teslas, our transportation solution? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. The Broward County panel has been chosen to judge if Nicholas Cruz lives the rest of his life in prison or dies. What do we know about the jurors and the evidence they will see and hear in the weeks ahead? If this holiday weekend is like recent holiday weekends, it means waits at the airports, delayed and canceled flights. What could travelers expect? And then a few South Florida cities are looking at the possibility of digging tunnels and driving Teslas to ease traffic. Really? It's ahead on our program, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting here in South Florida. We begin this edition here live on this Friday with a developing story out of Cuba. One of the most powerful communists in Cuba is dead. General Luis Rodriguez Lopez Caella died this morning. According to state media on the island, he died of a heart attack. He managed much of Cuba's economy. He was the head of Gaiasa, the military conglomerate that runs dozens of state companies, hotels, gas stations, retail stores, ports, marinas, import companies, controlling the Cuban economy. WLRN's America's editor Tim Paget is with us, and we're learning more, of course, as the afternoon wears on here, Tim. How significant is Rodriguez's death for Cuba's economy? Very significant. As you just pointed out, he controls the military-controlled conglomerate known as Gaesa, and that's very important because it controls the vital tourism industry in Cuba, which accounts for most of its economic revenue. And because of that control that he had over that conglomerate, he's also one of Cuba's top political leaders. Um, he was uh, last year made a member of the Communist Party Central Committee, which was arguably the most powerful uh, governmental body in Cuba. He's also a member of the National Assembly. And so uh, Cuba experts this morning are telling me that um, he was one of the top five figures in Cuba's inner power circle and that his death, uh, as one told me, leaves a, quote, big, if not huge, power vacuum in Cuba. Yeah. How much of that power vacuum does this create, given that uh, he, he was, what, in his early 60s, I think, and still very much in power? Exactly. He was only 62, died this morning of cardiac arrest. But what's significant that he is an ex-son-in-law of former Cuban President Raul Castro, who, let's face it, for all intents and purposes, despite the fact that he's in his 80s, is still the power uh, in Cuba. And as a result, uh, most experts agree that um, Rodriguez Lopez Calle was being groomed to be the sort of heir apparent to Raul Castro in the sense of being the military power mm. behind the civilian power hmm. in Cuba. And that's that's all important when we're talking about Cuban politics. Indeed, because that's where the force, both the threat and the reality is on the island. Exactly. Rod- Rodriguez had been sanctioned by the Trump administration, uh, whatever assets he had in the United States frozen. Do we know what his status was with the U.S. government? Uh, he was he was still under sanction. The, the problem, though, is that uh, when you're talking about Cuban officials um, targeting or trying to freeze their assets is a much more difficult job than, say, trying to freeze the assets of Venezuelan hmm. officials or, or officials in Nicaragua, et cetera. It's, it's just a, a murkier proposition. So I don't think that was really much uh, of a strain on him, to, to be truthful. How influential 
has he been within that inner circle? I mean, clearly he had a significant uh, power position, but how influential was he, for instance, with uh, the Cuban leader, Miguel Diaz-Canal? Well, as I said, I mean, he, as a general and as a, as, as the powerful general who is responsible for running or producing most of Cuba's economic revenue, uh, he was a very powerful military figure, sort of uh, looming over mm-hmm. civilian leaders like President uh, Diaz-Canel. Do we know if he played any decision role, for instance, in the crackdown of street protests that uh, Cuba experienced last summer? I'm, I'm sure he did, but uh, he pr- perhaps to a lesser extent than some of those officials who, who were sanctioned by the U.S. government after those protests. Again, his portfolio was much more economic uh, than, than security oriented, although as a military general, I mean, he, he of course, was involved yeah. in, in security operations to some extent, but probably not to the extent that we saw right after um, the the uh, July um, uh, protest of last summer. Given that economic portfolio that he controlled, how could his death impact the recent changes to the Biden administration's approach to Cuba? Uh, we saw those changes just uh, a couple of months ago, family reunification returning, more remittances, and uh, the United States for the first time okayed a license by an American to invest in a private Cuban company. No, that's a really good question, Tom, because his death may bring a lot of uncertainty into how, for example, that conglomerate we were just talking about, Gaesa, is now going to be run. And perhaps will it force, will his absence force the Cuban regime to perhaps um, uh, relegate some of those economic interests that Gaesa controls to more civilian hands? If that were to happen, then perhaps the Biden administration would feel more leeway to engage Uh, economically more with the Cuban regime, because the big sticking point is if we're engaging economically with Cuba, we're automatically engaging with the military. And that's verboten. Tim, you're a a, a veteran reporter on Cuban affairs, traveled the island extensively. Is that a possibility, do you think, given his his death and past performance that we've seen uh, within the past, you know, several decades? Oh, no. Experience tells us, no, it's a low possibility, but it always is a possibility. For example, the Biden administration is saying it wants to resume remittances to Cuba. That is making the Cuban regime now think about perhaps having the military relinquish control of the the uh, remittance processor in Cuba and handing that over to a civilian entity so that the Biden administration could feel more politically comfortable about letting remittances go to Cuba. So there's always the possibility but as you said, this is the Cuban regime, so it's a low possibility. I'll let you uh, get back on WhatsApp and uh, otherwise uh, you know, continue to connect with sources there as you uh, report out the story for us. WLRN's America's editor, Tim Paget. Uh, thanks so much, Tim. Thank you, Tom. Three months ago, jury selection for the trial of Nicholas Cruz began in Broward County with about 1,800 panelists. This week, it was whittled down to a dozen jurors, seven men, five women, sworn in alongside 10 alternates. This jury will decide whether the Parkland shooter gets a life sentence in prison without parole or the death penalty. The decision must be unanimous for him to receive that death sentence. And it's a rare sentencing for a mass shooter in the United States. No mass shooter in America who killed as many as the Parkland shooter has pled guilty to has made it to trial. The case is to begin July 18th. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. He's been uh, watching this jury selection process over the past many weeks, back with us here on the South Florida Roundup. So, Gerard, tell us about these uh, 12 panelists. Hi, Tom. 
Sure. It's a pretty diverse group, both in terms of race and age, um, also occupation. There's a, a vice president of a bank. There's a Walmart employee, an insurance claims adjuster, a librarian. So, uh, you know, I, I, in terms of diversity and, and, and uh, it's a bit different than what we thought. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of us thought that we were only going to get retirees on this panel because who else can sit uh, can miss work for four to six months, but uh, we're seeing a, a good, good uh, cross section of people here. How does this panel reflect Broward County, the jury of peers standard? Um, I, I'd say pretty well. Like I said, the the racial diversity there's there's a pretty good mix of men and women, mm-hmm. and also age. Now, the jury selection process, as uh, we've talked about on many Fridays and you've reported on extensively, has had some rough spots. How was it this week as this process came to a conclusion? Well, it wasn't it wasn't short of the rough spots um, and the the small, uh, weird technical blunders. Mm. But, um, you know, a bit smoother. The the uh, the third round was 53 people and it had the prosecutors asking very simple. How do you feel about law enforcement? How do you feel about guns? Do you own guns? Those sort of questions. And the defense telling uh, these prospective jurors, hey, you guys are going to see some graphic evidence, probably some stuff that a lot of you, um, unless they were in law enforcement or nurses, which there were some of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to see some some awful things, some awful evidence. Um, how do you how do you think you're going to stay fair after seeing that? Um, so I, after that, um, came the process of striking the jurors, which each side had had 10 preemptory strikes, or they could strike for cause. Preemptory strikes are for anything except for race um, and gender. And then for cause, uh, uh, you know, the defense would argue about, oh, well, this juror said, you know, they would have to see Nicholas Cruz be repentant. So he shouldn't be allowed on, on this on this jury. And uh, the lawyers would go back and forth there. Yeah. Will the jury be sequestered during testimony? Not during testimony. Uh, they've been given certain instructions and will be probably given them uh, every day. Yeah. But they will be sequestered during uh, the deliberation process, which with 17 counts, well, they'll have to uh, rule on, on, on each separate count. That will probably take a while. Uh, Gerard Albert III with us, WLRN's Broward County reporter. Stick with us, Gerard. David Weinstein is with us now. David is an attorney with Jones Walker, a partner in the litigation practice group. Uh, In a previous life, he was an assistant state attorney with the Miami-Dade County State Attorney's Office. He's been a prosecutor and a defense lawyer. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for creating the time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Tom. How does the makeup of this jury impact legal strategies uh, that prosecutors uh, and defense attorneys uh, will uh, will play out in the weeks ahead? Well, the, the defense is looking for a single juror who will believe their argument that Cruz's life is one worth saving based on the mitigating factors that they're going to present. So with regard to how the composition is going to affect that, they're going to be looking for people who have perhaps a background in dealing with individuals who have mental health issues or some of the other mitigating factors are going to present, including his age, you know, his capacity at the time, given his condition, uh, certain arguments that they're trying to make with regarding to how his brain operates. The prosecution 
is going to be looking for people who are going to analyze amongst the many factors, the fact that this was carried out in, in what we're going to hear from, from the prosecution, a heinous, atrocious, and cruel method, and one that was premeditated, and one that he thought about long before he committed these acts. So that's what the two sides are looking for. And David, as you heard our reporter Gerard uh, just describe, and Gerard's still with us, that jurors were asked about this uh, tolerance for some grisly evidence that's to come, and it is uh, to include a visit to the school building where the murders took place, where where it has not been uh, cleaned up, uh, it hasn't been scrubbed down. What are the considerations for the lawyers as uh, as that visit will uh, will be on the schedule in the uh, weeks ahead? Well, you know, look, certainly for the defense, it's going to be just the effect that that's going to have on the members of the jury when they bring them into the setting. Uh, as you pointed out, something that has not changed since the time that this incident occurred. But the lawyers and the judge also have to consider that they're there simply to observe. Nobody should be talking. They should simply be looking at what took place there. The judge is going to need to be present. Cruz is is going to need to be present. The prosecutors are going to need to be present. So the coordination for this is, is going to just be amongst the most complicated thing that they're going to have to deal with. And the defense is going to be looking at some, or looking rather for some flaw in this coordination, one that they can mm-hmm. argue tainted what the results are going to be. More so, procedural you know, then, kind of, David, looking for that kind of opening? Yes. I see. Abs- absolutely. Gerard, as, as, as in the jury selection, as uh, the judge and whether or not the attorneys mentioned this visit to the uh, to the murder site, how, how has that been characterized and, and how were the jurors asked about it? Well, uh, there were some pretrial hearings based on um, whether they would allow the jurors or allow the prosecutors to bring the jurors mm-hmm. to the to the school. Um, and strategically, it's it's um, you know I've been told by several sources that it's a it's a move that will bring most people to want to vote for the death penalty. Uh, and these are people who had been to the scene themselves because it is so so real at that point and and. Um, the jurors were asked about it uh, pretty plainly. Uh, and, you know, the, the defense lawyers said, you know, you're going to see autopsy photos. Um, you will have to go and, and tour the school where it happened. And there's body fluid and there's blood and there's, there's Valentine's Day cards on the floor because the shooting happened mm-hmm. on Valentine's Day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they asked the juror, do you think you can see that stuff? And uh, still be uh still listen to the other evidence and most of them said they could um obviously it's a task that again unless you were in in, in certain uh, the, maybe the military law enforcement or or the healthcare field you've probably never seen something so graphic so it's yet to be seen how it'll affect and how how it'll how the jurors will stay fair during that it's uh, certainly going to be uh, a really unimaginable day for uh, the families involved, uh, for the jurors certainly involved uh, when that uh, tour happens. David, as I mentioned, th- this is a rare occurrence, uh, a rare sentencing for a mass shooter in the United States. There has never been someone who uh, has... Uh, uh, admitted to uh, killing as many people in a mass shooting that has made it to a sentencing trial, to a death penalty trial. How does a jury tune out media reports 
of the trial and media reports of the evidence as they're weighing that evidence, even as they go home each night back into the community, back into their homes. I think that's going to be the most difficult thing for these jurors to do, aside from the graphic images and things that they're going to see. And it's become worse uh, based on the ability of all of us to access news at any moment, at any time, from anywhere we are, as long as we have a cell phone or a computer. So these jurors are all going to take an oath at the beginning of the trial Mm -hmm. to follow the rules, and they're going to tell us that they're going to ignore the social media. They're going to ignore news reports, traditional media, and they're simply going to focus on what they see and hear in the courtroom. And we have to take them at their word because that's the way the system works and that's the way the system operates. So we have to take them at the word just the same way we have to take them at their word that they can be fair and impartial and just judge their decision as to whether or not the penalty should be death or life imprisonment based on the evidence they heard. So we have to trust these jurors to do exactly that. It's going to be difficult for them because you're going to get a newspaper in the morning. We can have family and friends, but it's going to be just as difficult if they were going to be sequestered from the minute that they started hearing testimony. So I think that the sides and the judge are trying to face, uh, strike a fair balance here between when we should start the sequestration process. And a lot of these questions about media and influence of media were asked of these jurors before, during the first two phases of the jury selection process. So again, we have to take people at their word Mm -hmm. if the system is going to work. David Weinstein is uh, our guest, attorney with Jones Walker in the uh, litigation practice group. Uh, He was an assistant state attorney with Miami-Dade County State Attorney's Office. David, thanks for sharing some time with us today. You're welcome. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Lots more to report in the weeks ahead. Gerard, always a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us here on The Roundup. Thank you, Tom. Still to come, we're going to switch topics here and talk about this holiday weekend ahead. Are you flying? Are you traveling? Do you have tickets later this summer? Travel's hot. We want to know your experiences. 800-743-WLRN. 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN, live on this Friday, a holiday weekend ahead of us. I'm Tom Hudson. So, animal or plant? If you're flying this holiday weekend, your trip may begin with an animal or plant. Now, follow me here, okay? At Miami International Airport, the parking garages are named for animals, right? The dolphin garage, the flamingo garage. You've seen these signs as you circle around looking for a parking spot, probably. Now, if you're flying in or out of Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport... It's plant-named garages, hibiscus, palm, cypress. So animal or plant, that's the first decision, right? But then, of course, there's the crowds of travelers, the delays, and the possibility of flight cancellations. This 4th of July holiday weekend is predicted to be an awfully busy one during a tough summer for travel because so many of us are out there. Record-breaking flight and passenger numbers combined with unpredictable weather, staffing shortages at uh, airports and uh, carriers, all making a summer travel season very, very hectic. So are you on your way to an airport for this holiday season, just back perhaps from picking up family or friends, waiting for your flight, waiting for a delayed flight? Do you have plans to fly later this summer in or out of South Florida? Share your experiences with us now, live on this Friday, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. 
76. If it's noisy where you're at, flip open Twitter, hit us up at at WLRN and share your experiences with us there. Greg Chen is with us now. He is the communications director of Miami International Airport. Greg, welcome back to WLRN. Thanks for taking some time on what I imagine is a very busy Friday. What's the status of the airport this afternoon? Yes, it's very busy, but things are moving very smoothly, I have to say. And uh, I have to mention that uh, you forgot that there are monkeys at Fort Lauderdale Airport in their um, park and ride garage. So they do have their share of animals, too. Yeah. But um, Fair enough. I was thinking day. about the short-term parking that's right there on site. But fair enough. I appreciate that right. fact check, Greg. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So, you know, absolutely uh, very busy day for us. We expect uh, an average of 145,000 passengers this weekend. And we expect that to even increase tomorrow and Sunday and uh, the latter part of the weekend when people come back. That's usually the biggest day is when everyone returns, yeah. let's say Monday and Tuesday. So, so you, very busy weekend for us. 145,000 passengers. That's over the course of the holiday weekend? That's per day. Per so, day. Uh, and how's that compared to pre-pandemic July 4th holidays? So that's 20,000 passengers more per day uh, compared to last year. And last year was more typical of 2019 numbers. So that's also uh, more than our record year of 2019. So uh, we, we've been uh, ahead of the pack as far as the rebound in travel uh, nationwide. Uh, MIA has been up 15% over pre-pandemic numbers, which is pretty incredible. So if we think about 20,000 more passengers per day through MIA this holiday weekend compared to the pre-pandemic holiday weekend. That is an entire Miami Heat sellout game worth of passengers each day coming through the airport. That's a good way to look at it. (laughs) And so what about airport staffing levels? So as far as the airport's concerned, the frontline folks are TSA, and we've been assured by TSA that they're fully staffed. They have their full complement. They've actually been able to uh, reassign employees from MIA to other airports that even have more need. So we're well staffed with TSA and CBP for international arrivals. Uh, so we're as prepared as we can be for uh, the increase in travelers and uh, and airport staff as well. Our frontline people at the queue lines and managing the different issues in the terminal uh, from the, uh, as we like to say, from the, the, the curb to the cabin. We have staff ready to assist passengers uh, throughout. So uh, we've seen this increase really since the winter travel season at the beginning of the year, end of last year. Uh, we've seen this spike in travel since then. So uh, we've we've gotten used to it, and we're uh, we're doing a pretty good job, I think. And how about uh, COVID protocols, masking requirements, and those types of things for staff members? Well, so that has been lifted since uh, this is last month. I'm sorry, we're in July now. So uh, that was lifted in May. So it's not required. It's optional for employees if they feel comfortable wearing a mask, of course, but not a requirement anymore for uh, employees or passengers. I'm looking at TSA web uh, TSA wait times live on the MIA website right now, Greg, as we're talking uh, about 1.30 here on this Friday ahead of the 4th of July uh, weekend. Uh, wait times pretty respectable here. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe maybe 10, 15 minutes or so, maybe a little bit longer in some of the specialty places. Right. Yeah. And we've seen some peaks where it's jumped up to as high as 30 minutes. And that's peak times. And something to keep in mind with summer travelers, you have large groups traveling together. So uh, a group of a large group of a family, uh, you know, relatives, summer travel groups, you know, summer camps, these kinds of things. So sometimes the checkpoint will be empty, and then you'll see this surge of people all at once. It's like 20 people 
show up and, and then you have a few of those together and you have a, a really high peak. So um, that's something that's somewhat unique to summer travel. And I read some of the uh, requests or uh, uh, some of the um, uh, recommendations were for flyers who are flying domestically within the United States to show up at Miami International Airport more than three hours before scheduled takeoff? Yeah, so the reason for that partly is because of our parking situation. Our parking garages have filled to capacity on weekends especially, and uh, especially uh, uh, holiday weekends like 4th of July, Memorial Day. So uh, that's why we're asking three hours before because it takes you time to find a parking space for one, and sometimes even to get into the garage. We have to hold people outside Mm. until some passengers leave so it frees up spaces so that's why we want people to get here and not be surprised at a line at the garage because we told you hey get here three hours because you may have to wait a while to get into that garage any real-time update you can give us on the dolphin or the flamingo garage there at mia on this friday well we've been trying to get the word out all week to be dropped off by ride share friend and family taxi whatever um and it seems like that message is getting through because our garage is so far knock on wood uh, still have space. So mm. we're doing well so far uh, through today. It's a sign of a real friend when they'll uh, take you to the airport to drop you off or pick you up for that matter. Greg, stick with us here. Greg Chen is the uh, communications director at Miami International Airport. Big travel weekend, big travel summer. Do you have travel plans? Please share them with us here. 800-743-WLRN. If you've flown in or out of uh, any of the Miami or South Florida airports, your experiences at 800-743-9576 or at WLRN on Twitter. Anna Jean Kaiser is with us now, the tourism reporter for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Anna, welcome to the program. What does flyer demand look like in and out of South Florida this summer? So, yeah, the demand is really high. Just to echo some of what uh, Greg said, you know, I get their press releases and it feels like almost every holiday weekend MIA is breaking its own records in terms of, you know, the number of people that they're moving through that airport. And um the same is true at Fort Lauderdale. It's been really busy there as well. A um, lot of lines, troubles with the parking. Um, it's been, yeah, very busy season. Uh, demand is high. The um, occupancy rates in hotels are quite high as well. Airbnb has been, you know, making a killing here. Um, so it's been kind of a repeat of last summer where there was sort of no slow season. Hmm. Um, this summer, I think there's an expectation that there'll be a little bit more of a slowdown than last summer, but it does seem to be a, people are bracing for a sort of repeat year of, you know, the flow of tourists to just kind of continue through these super hot months. Uh, Greg talked about the airport staffing levels, particularly with TSA. What about the air carrier staffing levels on a you know uh, check-in uh, uh, folks uh, baggage handlers those kinds of things yeah absolutely there's been you know the staff shortages that are happening in industries across the country are definitely happening at airlines um there's been a lot of struggles with pilots um mm. you know american airlines for example they said they've hired 600 pilots this year, but they're trying to get to 2000. That's more than double what they've ever hired in a year. Um, so pilot shortages is a big deal. Um, air traffic controller shortages is also something that's, you know, causing some delays and uh, some issues in in the industry right now. Um, 
So, and flight attendants as well, you know, flight attendants from Spirit Airlines um, protested at Fort Lauderdale Airport last month, um, you know, just saying that they're really overworked, which can be kind of dangerous for their job. Uh, so definitely the staff shortages are being felt at the airlines. Um, you know, hopefully the thing, especially with the pilots and the air traffic controllers is that, um, you know, those are positions that take a long time for training. Yeah. yeah. Not like you can sort of just say, I want to be a pilot today. Um, <laughs> so that's definitely a part of the, the big, uh, you know, the holdup with, um, air traffic control and pilots. So it's, it's a pretty big challenge. Yeah. Greg, let me ask you about air traffic control at MIA. What, what, what is staffing levels uh, been like there? And you know, what's the implication if, uh, if there's been uh, fewer folks uh, going up into that tower to control the, to control the sky traffic? Yeah. So actually the staffing that affects all of Florida's airports and even some airports in the Southeast is based out of Jacksonville. And that's their control center where they have, reported staffing challenges there as well. You add that to the airline staffing challenges and that has, uh, you, you get the result of uh, a high number of delays and cancellations. So we actually had 45 cancellations just yesterday and the majority of those were because of staffing shortages and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and primarily from the airlines uh, that they're just not able to staff the, the schedule of flight that they have. So. Um, so for sure, it's a challenge. I mean, the airline industry is like any industry that we've seen over the last two years. They've been impacted by people leaving the job, resigning, finding other uh, places of work, you know, not being able to show up work to work for COVID. Uh, so it, in, in this case, it impacts thousands of people. You know, it, instead of at a restaurant or a hotel, you've got people who can't show up to work because they're sick or whatever. And uh they're not able to staff those flights. So it, it's definitely been a challenge. So, Anna, how has this affected on-time performance at airports here in South Florida? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, it has affected, as you would guess, uh, on-time performance pretty negatively. Um, you know, we saw, um, Greg shared with me the other day, I think about um, a little over one-third of the flights that have left MIA in June so far had been delayed or canceled. Um, so you know, definitely travelers should be checking in with their airline, making sure that they're getting those alerts about what could be happening with their flight. You know, there's one also big thing that causes delays in this part of the country is the lightning storms, which is kind of just, you know, out of everybody's control. So definitely over the summer, you got to watch out for those and you make sure that you're, you know, figuring out exactly what's happening with your flight because it has been, there've been a lot of delays recently. Yeah, I'll tell you, long time, I'm not a rule, but a, a, a recommendation in our household is if you're going to land at MIA, probably don't do it around sundown, right? Uh, because of those storms yeah. that can gather some uh, strength over the Everglades all day long. And then as that upper atmosphere cools off just enough, you begin to see those uh, squalls come in. Greg, that on-time performance, a third of flights in June delayed or canceled? What, what's a delayed flight? Is that 15 minutes late pulling out of the gate or 15 minutes late getting wheels up? Yeah, so for a departure, it's 15 minutes from the scheduled departure time. And same thing for an arrival, it's 15 minutes delayed from when it was supposed to be at the gate. 
So 50 minutes or more. Yeah. And so how does that one third of flights being delayed or canceled in June at MIA? I mean, what's the explanation for that? And and what can be done to address that? Yeah. So as Anna mentioned, uh, a large majority of that is related to airline staffing. Uh, you do have uh, airline maintenance issues from time to time. That's uh, pretty random, but uh, the staffing and weather, as Anna mentioned, that uh, I know just Wednesday we had uh, two instances of lightning storms in the area. Airline staff have to leave the airfield. That delays flights. You know, we had at, for, at one time an hour of uh, ground stoppage, another time half an hour. So. Yeah. Uh, that made that made the difference of uh, from yesterday, 40 flights uh, canceled to the day before, 80 flights canceled. Mm. Um, you know, and so uh, weather has a ripple effect, and then you have weather up and down the East Coast. I mean, thunderstorms are not germane to Florida, even though we're the lightning capital. You, you uh, there's weather uh, projected to be stormy uh, in the Northeast this weekend, so that affects. Mm. The arrival time coming to Miami it may not even yep. maybe a beautiful day outside, but it's rainy in, up in New York or in the Atlantic area. As your so, uh, yeah, as folks are, are looking at their uh, their flight schedules, where is the machine that you're supposed to get on? Where's the plane that's supposed to be at MIA or Fort Lauderdale or PBI coming from? Uh, because if that doesn't show up on time, then odds are you're going to be late as well. Uh, right. So let's uh, on a relief on the horizon here. Uh, I mean, lots of travel demand. Airlines adding capacity at all to kind of ease up on this. Do they have the ability to do that given the staffing challenges? Well, it seems you know American Airlines, for example, is running. I think their busiest schedule ever, one of their busiest schedules at MIA uh, this summer. So they're definitely you know airlines are trying. Demand is not the problem for them. So they're certainly trying <laughs> yeah. to, you know, fill all the seats that they can. Um, it's definitely an interesting time for the tourism business because, yeah, demand is really not the problem. It's all these sort of um, these economic issues that have been, you know, persisting since the pandemic started with the staffing shortages, inflation, supply chain. Um, so, you know, they're definitely trying, I think, but um, some, you know, I don't know if anyone knows exactly how to crack the the issue of staffing shortages. You know, a lot of businesses are, and airlines are raising pay, um, signing bonuses, but it's been like this for, you know, over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're certainly trying. I think they're trying their yeah. best, but it's, uh, it's quite the challenge. Um, but they definitely want to, you know, put passengers in those seats. Carol in Miami has been listening to our conversation. I want to invite her in. Carol, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, go ahead. You're on the radio. Sure. I have a friend, Linda, who's one of the volunteers at the airport. And for some reason, it just seems that they've kind of limited us, uh, the volunteers, to to not be able to uh, be at the airport, especially during this time where, You've got so many people um, who are distressed for various and sundry reasons. Carol, and, tell me a little uh, bit more about this volunteer program. Uh, what, what kinds of things would volunteers, does your friend do at MIA? As far as I know, she goes in and um, basically volunteers during the week. I know they have it on weekdays, weekends, and they man the volunteer stations uh, in different parts of the airport. Mm. Uh, some of them are 
mobile um, uh, desks that they put in different parts of the airport, inside security and outside security, both. Yeah. Greg, are you familiar with this volunteer program, kind of an information desk program? Absolutely. We have a great group of volunteers that we had as many as 90 pre-pandemic. And of course, we uh, asked them to not come in for their safety uh, during the pandemic. And we're starting to ramp that up. We're at about a third of that number now. And we're getting there. We'd love to have them there on the weekend. But uh, to have volunteers, there also means having airport staff on the weekends uh, to coordinate that program and, and um, assign them where they need to go. So we're just not there quite yet, but we look forward to having them back on the weekend very soon. So the volunteer program not in play over a weekend, but just during weekdays and still about a third of the size of the pre-pandemic. Is that right? Right, exactly. Yeah, so we have about 20 to 30 volunteers that are uh, they're fantastic. They donate their time throughout the week, at least a four-hour shift at a time. And they're at our information desk. There's a uh, passenger trolley that's pre-security that they can transport passengers from sometimes one end of the airport to the other. If someone's having a hard time, if they have a limp or, you know, they have some kind of uh, um, mobility challenge. So uh, they're fantastic. A lot of them are former airport and airline workers Mm -hmm. that know the airport. They love the industry and we, you know, they, they can't stay away. So they they love the environment and uh, we appreciate their, their experience, their knowledge. So uh, we're getting there. We'd we'd love to have them back, but uh, we're we're working our way up to getting people back on the weekends as well. Greg Chen is the uh, communications director for Miami International Airport. Greg, thanks for uh, creating some time on uh, this busy Friday, this uh, holiday weekend getaway. My pleasure. Uh, Anna Jean Kaiser with uh, uh, our news partner, the Miami Herald. Anna, I, I want to talk just finally about a uh, big merger of uh, or a potential merger of an airline here based in Florida, the fight for Spirit Airlines. Frontier uh, Airlines has made an offer to purchase uh, uh, Spirit JetBlue as a competing offer as well. Uh, bring us updated here about the, the status of this, uh, this potential uh, merger of uh, ultra low cost uh, airlines. Yeah, so this has been turned into quite a heated bidding war for uh, Spirit Airlines, which, you know, as many people know, is based here in South Florida in Miramar. Um, So it started back in February when Frontier um, and Spirit together announced that they were going to merge. Um, That would have been a merger that um, Frontier was going to be the majority shareholder. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know. You can decide what you want that exactly that's well, going to mean it, spirit. But um, And it was decided that was somewhat of a friendly merger. But then JetBlue made an unsolicited offer and has continued to uh, increase. And so, and so kind of this, this public auction, so to speak, has been happening here for Spirit Airlines. Yeah, and they just keep upping the ante. Um, and the shareholders, so it's now going to go down to a shareholders vote. Um Spirit's board of directors has come out, um, you know, very clearly saying that they want the frontier deal and they're urging shareholders to vote against or to vote the to vote for the frontier deal to approve it happening. Um, And, you know, JetBlue just keeps coming in and offering more and sort of on its face, the JetBlue deal is worth more in cash. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, frontier. is a lot like Spirit Airlines, but more in the West Coast. So combining those two would create, you know, a coast to coast ultra discount airline. Those are the two, um, they're the two lowest fares in the industry. They 
drive fares down. Um, they sort of set the floor for airfare. And uh, JetBlue is also a discount carrier, but it's not quite the same model. Yeah, it's um, not an ultra low cost carrier like Spirit yeah, and Frontier exactly. are. So, uh, you know, uh, how a regulator, what's the impact for consumers ultimately? If, as you say, right, Spirit and others have, and Frontier have kind of set the, have driven down the cost of air travel over the past many years uh, with consolidation here. Does that mean? That mean no longer prices are likely to go up? Yeah, so that's definitely the big question here. And regulatory approval is extremely important in either of these deals. Um, you know, the Biden administration has said that they're going to be looking at mergers and acquisitions with more scrutiny. So, you know, which one of these deals could get approved is kind of the biggest factor in deciding which one to go with. Mm -hmm. um, some analysts will say that the Frontier and Spirit merger is more likely to get approved because it's potentially good for consumers because it creates this coast-to-coast, ultra-discount, um, you know, super low-fare carrier, um, whereas, you know, the JetBlue model would potentially be worse for consumers. So yeah. there's that's like one line of thought that some analysts have been saying. And then what about just impact here in South Florida? Spirit's a, a big carrier at Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood International Airport. It's been growing its presence at MIA. Frontier has a small presence. JetBlue has a pretty significant presence at Fort Lauderdale as well. Yeah, definitely. So all of these, you know, even Frontier restarted its service at Fort Lauderdale pretty recently. Um, it spirit is the largest carrier at fort lauderdale second largest carrier at mia um so huge presence here Spirit's obviously, second at mia wow i didn't realize it that. is but it's wow. it's a very distant second okay uh, american airlines is so enormous yeah is yeah. by far the largest um so but yeah spirit's a big carrier here in south florida i think that no matter what happens this south florida base is going to be really important to you know whatever future airline this is like spirit is the airline that flies a lot to latin america and the caribbean and um you know JetBlue and frontier don't have that same kind of network right. um so i think that that you know that presence i think will still stay you know if the headquarters of this future company moves i think that's probably up for debate um spirit is currently constructing a new headquarters um and they've said that they're still going through with that construction so you know i assume that that means that they'll still be a pretty big corporate presence um but you know they do employ uh 3400 people mm -hmm. here in south florida and a lot of those are you know high-paying corporate jobs um, yeah. And, and, you know, back to the original conversation about just uh, the big summer travel, how is Spirit dealing with staffing? Yeah, so Spirit's actually, they've done pretty well on on-time performance, but um, their flight attendants have been pretty vocal about being overworked. Um, they did some picketing at Fort Lauderdale in, um, in May, and, you know, we're saying that they were often left without hotel rooms, um, that they were working longer hours than they're legally allowed to. So I think they're definitely struggling with some of the um, the staffing shortages that basically everybody in the industry is. Um, 
but you know, I think <laughs> I think they're trying their best as yeah. as many of these airlines are. Anajin Kaiser covering tourism for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Anajin, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Busy holiday travel season. Don't forget that charging cord wherever you happen to be headed. Still to come here on this edition of the South Florida Roundup, we're going to continue to talk about transportation. Tunnels for Teslas. Are they a solution to traffic headaches here? 800-743-WLRN. 800-743-9576. We're back on the South Florida Roundup here live on this Friday on WLRN. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting. As South Florida continues building up, is the future of transportation underground? At least three cities are exploring the idea of tunnels to ease traffic congestion. Miami City officials see the tunnels as a potential solution to moving some commuters below ground, putting them in Teslas. Administrators say this would only reduce traffic significantly if a system crosses multiple municipalities. Is there a chance that uh, Miami or some other South Florida city will have an Elon Musk Miami loop in the future? What do your weekly commutes look like? Do you take public transportation? How about commuting underground? Is there a better solution to untying South Florida's traffic? 800-743-WLRN. Get those calls in quickly. 800-743-9576. Joy Fletches covers the city of Miami for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Joy, welcome back. Um, I I have to say my reaction, maybe your reaction, lots of reaction as I spoke to people and we saw the headline and you're reporting this week in the Miami Herald about Teslas uh, and tunnels. Really? Yeah, well, you know, the, it, it, it's an idea that is actually being employed in a, in, a, in a certain way over in Las Vegas underneath the convention center where they've built a tunnel that's about a mile long. Um, and, and they are expanding this network, but it basically shuttles uh, in regular tel- Teslas, the kind that you see on the road right now, um, convention goers from one end of the campus to another, and it certainly cuts that, that walking trip down. Um, but what's being contemplated here in, a, in the very earliest stages, I'll say, is this kind of broader vision of electric vehicles being, you know, with, with bigger capacity, like six to seven people or more, um, shuttling people around Miami-Dade County uh, and underneath underground tunnels. And it certainly, I think, it hits your ears the way it hits mine and most people's, which is like, how exactly is that going to work? Right. How will it be more efficient? Or how would it be a better idea than the current, improving the current transit system? That yeah. Well, tunnels are possible in South Florida, right? I mean, there's uh, there's one under Biscayne Bay uh, that goes to Port Miami. There's one in Fort Lauderdale under the New River. So tunnels are they're very short, though, uh, compared to kind of what uh, North Miami Beach is envisioning, two and a half miles or more, or even this kind of uh, inspirational idea that the city of Miami is uh, has beginning to explore. Right. They've, they've, they've actually paid a consultant to produce a study that, you know, looks at where they could possibly create stops for, uh, you know, up to like 29 miles worth of tunnels. And, you know, the, the, the geotechnical uh, concerns there, I mean, literally drilling, you know, 40 feet into the ground into, you know, where we have, um, you know, groundwater that yeah. rises high, uh, where, you know, we have forest limestone, we have sea level rise considerations. I mean, those are all very, and even the folks that commissioned this study over at City Hall will tell you, uh, we would need to solve those problems and figure out a way to not it can't happen but i mean then it brings in the question of is it more efficient right is it because that's expensive work right it's expensive work to kind of make uh, to waterproof tunnels to uh make sure that there's emergency access and that there are either you know you can get out of there if something happens down there if a car breaks down whatever it may be 
all of these things are questions that are unanswered at this point. Yeah, uh, we've got an interesting question here from a listener. Uh, Jonah in Fort Lauderdale is listening into this. Uh, 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 thanks for calling. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, I've been commuting from Boca Raton to Fort Lauderdale for the last 25 years, and I've noticed a congestion uh, tremendously greater in the last uh, few years, I guess, pandemic on with lots of people moving from out of state, I believe. But it seems to me, I commute mostly on the turnpike, somewhat in, um, uh, somewhat on 95. Mm-hmm. But I think the inner city traffic is where it's really the worst, you know, from light to light, getting from my house to the turnpike or from my house to uh, 95 or, you know, from the highways to my yeah. office. That's where it's really bad. So I think if they're going to build tunnels and do something like that, that's really where the, the congestion needs to be relieved. I don't think the highways are uh, as bad uh, or as big of a problem. Yeah, that's a good point there, Joy. As, as folks in South Florida are envisioning this, what about interconnectedness between, you know, kind of the, the core of cities where they're looking at some of these tunnels versus that last mile, last few miles out in the bedroom communities? That is that is in line with what uh, some of the officials I spoke to in Miami um, are, are, are. That's what they'd like to bring to the county to elevate that conversation and to say, what would it look like if we could connect, you know, major hubs in the county, not not necessarily to stretch all the way out into, you know, deep suburbia, but to say, if you know, up and down, you know, the kind of uh, coastal core, mm-hmm. urban core. You know, is that a solution? I mean, even in the shortest in the shortest term, like the study that was produced on behalf uh, for the city um, showed that, you know, if they had a ranking in terms of studying population and people who use transit and and people who, need, you know, they need access to transit, um, they're looking at like, you know, airport to downtown or downtown to, you know, uh, Brickell. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these really high traffic core areas where you're going to have a lot of cars piled up at any, you know, any time of the day as being potential routes especially early on, like highly rated routes. Um, this is all writership, by the way. There's nothing in this study and in the, even this preliminary conversation that you know talks about all the other challenges I mentioned earlier, <laughs> which is why this is really just in the super-duper you know, uh, early idea stage, but you know, still raises a ton of questions. Yeah, indeed it does. Uh, aspirational, interesting to certainly think about, and uh, obviously some public tax dollars are going toward uh, exploring uh, very, very, right. very early here in the conception. Joy Fletcher's great reporting. Always a pleasure. Thanks for sharing it with us here on this Friday. Thanks for having me. Joy Fletcher is the uh, City of Miami reporter for our news partner, the Miami Herald, here on the South Florida Roundup. Our program is produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. News director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is the WLRN editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The director of radio operations here at WLRN and our program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, tweeting, supporting public broadcasting. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. The program made possible by Willie the B-Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.